So, scam victims in Singapore lost a total of $660 million last year, up from the $632 million in 2021. That's a staggering amount, isn't it? Imagine, many would have lost their life savings to these scammers. And because many of these scammers are based overseas, they might not be brought to justice. Many would have lived a high life while their victim's life is down in the dumps. Will there be justice in this world? How will a holy God respond to evil? That's the question we want to explore today. How will a holy God respond to evil? If you refer to the uh, e-bulletin, you will see the sermon outline in the e-bulletin so that you can follow along. So just a recap of what we have covered so far. We are on the Two, uh, two Ways to Live series. Uh, the first session, we talk about how God, the Creator, how He created this beautiful and good world and also appointed us as co-rulers with Him to rule over this world, to give Him glory, honour, and to live under his good rule. And we see last week that our rebellion against God, first, we rejected him as the generous giver. You know, God has offered us an all-you-can-eat buffet spread in the Garden of Eden. You know, God said that you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. And I believe, Pastor Jeff, that the durian tree is there as well, right? But then... Adam and Eve doubted and rejected God as a generous giver. They doubted his goodness. And next we see that God mandated that you must not hurt you, or rather you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they rejected God as the lawgiver. No, Eve decided to play God and to come up with her own definition of morality. She says, you must not touch it or you will die. God never mandated this command at all. It was something that Eve included, suggesting that this God is petty, that he would mandate death penalty for just mere touching of the fruit. And we also see that Adam and Eve have, has rejected God as the judge and disregarded his judgment. For God says, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But when the serpent scammed them, the serpent came along and said, you will not certainly die. No, he sell them the lie that God is not acting in your best interest. No, in fact, he said, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This, this is what God knows and this is what God don't want you to know, that, that you can be like God. No, that life without God is far better. In fact, you can live your life without Him. And so we see that Adam and Eve rebel against God as the generous giver, as the lawgiver, and as judge. And so humanity rejects God as king, and we try to run our lives our own way, making a mess of this world. If you flip to the newspaper, 80 to 90% of the news are, are actually bad news. 
So what will God do with rebels? How will a holy God respond to evil? We see that God's love compels him to punish evil. Now the rulers and governments of some country, they are, they are corrupted. Now, so corruption is tolerated and abounds in that country. From the top official to the lowest official, all of them are thirsting for coffee because they are always asking for kopi money, right? Or a bribe. And the rod of corruption makes the life of the people miserable and bitter. On the other hand, the psalmist gives us a glimpse into what sort of ruler God is. In Psalm 33 verse 5, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. See, God is a God who rules with justice and righteousness. And God not only acts justly, but God also demands us to act justly. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, God calls his people to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before him, so that the earth is full of his unfailing love. Psalm 89 verses 13 and 14 tells us that God established his rule on righteousness and justice, on love and faithfulness. See, God's love compels him to act and to respond against those who rebel against his values, those who advocate unrighteousness, injustice, evil and betrayal, God will respond and act against them. I just use Singapore for an exam as an example. You know, Singapore is known for being anti-drug and anti-corruption, right? To protect and rid our society from the evils of drugs and corruption, our government acts against it by enacting laws, very tough laws against drugs and corruption. So likewise, to safeguard and rid our world of evil and sin, God will move his strong and mighty hand against rebels who oppose him and act unjustly against his good and loving rule. And his wrath is the rightful expression of his holy love in the face of sin and evil. And so today's verse shows us that show us what his judgment looks like against rebels like us. Hebrews 9.27, let's read this together. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. So God, in his grace, he puts an end to our rebellion. He puts an end to perpetual evil by mandating the death penalty. Our death is the fulfillment of God's judgment in Genesis chapter 2, 17. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot escape death. It is destined or appointed by God. We will surely die. That's why, you know, as a bereavement pastor, I will never run out of business, 
right? Because death will surely happen. But of course, some will argue that death deprives justice. What do I mean? Well, I've, uh, on my holidays or on my on mission trip, I've went around the world, uh, yeah, so to some parts of the world, but there's a certain place in this world which left, uh, there's this particular place which left a deep and lasting impression upon my heart. Upon my heart because it, it reveals to me the brutality and the depravity of mankind. It's the Two Slang Genocide Museum in Cambodia. How many of you have been to uh, this Two Slang Genocide Museum? Okay, I see a few hands. Well, it's a museum to show us the evils of this ruler of Cambodia called Pol Pot. So, under Pol Pot's evil rule, it's estimated that some two million Cambodians died under his reign of starvation, of torture, of execution, from the very young to the very old. So in this museum, you'll see photos of young kids, victims of the photos, uh, uh, victims of, of his atrocity, young kids, and you see the museum filled with human skulls. And Popot lived to a ripe old age of 72 years old, while many of his victims died very, very young. Although his reign ended, but Popot never apologized. He never go to trial. He died without justice being served. Death deprives justice. But according to Hebrews 9.27, can we have the slide again? There is more. There is a final judgment after death. After death, we will render account to God on how we live our lives. We cannot just simply escape death because death is a reminder that there will come a final judgment. And Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 gives us an insight into this final judgment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So God keeps a permanent and accurate record of all deeds. Whether these books are literal or symbolic, the bottom line is that God will judge us according to it. So how does this truth affect us today? Are you ready for death? Are you ready for the final judgment? For the certainty of our death points to the certainty of this judgment. And because we know that God, God's love compels him to punish evil, how should we respond then? then? Well, I'd like to suggest that we should respond with repentance. Now, as we drive along the roads and the highways, you know, you'll see the warning sign, speeding kills. Do you all see that, those who drive? If you don't see that, means you are driving too fast, okay? <laughs> or you will notice a bright orange speed cameras on our roads. I'm not quite sure why they paint the, the speed camera or bright orange. Shouldn't it be stealth, right? So that people 
won't know. But anyway, it's, it's speed cameras are there to remind us of our foolishness, to slow down. No, just like a CT scan reveals a tumor in our body and warns us that we need urgent medical help. So likewise, God's warning of judgment is God's grace to sinners. That God will hold us accountable for every word that we utter, for every thought that we think, and every deeds of ours. It is meant to stop us rebels in our tracks, to re-examine our lives and to know our need for repentance, to turn away from sin and to turn back to God. And God's love that compels him to punish evil will comfort those who have faced injustice and evil in their lives. So there are Christians who are martyred for their faith in Christ. Some lost their loved ones, their friends, their homes, their future. And the holy God who judges not only to punish evil, will also vindicate his persecuted people because justice will be served. Perhaps you have been betrayed or cheated. You have been treated awfully and abused. You have suffered great loss and the hurt lingers on till today. And you have no recourse to justice. But take heart, my friends, for Romans 12 verse 19 tells us, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Faith is allowing God to be judge and vindicator of your life, that God is doing something about evil. But yet, sadly, we still buy into Satan's lies. We still buy into the equivalent of Satan's you will not certainly die lies, with you will not certainly be judged, no, where we disregard and reject God's judgment. Some believe that there's no judgment after death. No, there is perhaps reincarnation there's a second chance for you to live all over again. Or perhaps you'll be placed in purgatory. It's like being placed on our church camp wait list, right? You'll never know if you'll make it. Or some believe that after once upon death, poof, you'll poof into nothingness. That life is just an illusion. Don't even think about it. The warning of God's judgment is to restrain evil. It demands that we act justly or face the consequences. It's an inconvenient truth that forces us to repent, and we hate it. So the rejection of God's judgment will result in more evil. Since there is no such thing as final judgment, then who will hold us accountable to how we live our lives, isn't it? So we can live life without consequences. We can exploit the poor, take advantage of our employee or our domestic helper. We can neglect the widow, neglect our aging parents. We can do porn and think 
very little about it. And we let our pride and anger rule over others and make their lives miserable. And when the revelation of God's final judgment is rejected, we are likely to seek vengeance, to plead God to take justice into our own hands. You know, so as you drive on the road, you know, someone cut into your lane without signaling, what do you do? You cut back, right? We want to hurt those who hurt us, creating a vicious cycle of vengeance. And in all likelihood, we will become perpetrators of injustice if you reject the notion of a God who judges. And we not just reject God's judgment, but we reject God as judge. We believe in Satan's lies that you can be like God. No, we question God's right to judge us. And we play judge and judge God. We put God on the dock when we question Him. When we question, how can a loving God unleash His wrath on us? How can a God who proclaims to be love hates and punishes? Well, imagine with me for a moment that, just humor me, all right? Imagine with me for a moment. We have all traveled back in time. We are now living in 1942, Singapore, during the Japanese occupation. And right now, a bunch of Japanese imperial soldiers just march in through that door into the hall. They stop right here, proceed to slap a few of your faces, and they make all the men kneel down. They draw out their sword and slit their throat and behead them. And they proceed to rape some of our young women in our midst. After they are done, they lock up the door and proceed to set fire to our church to burn it all down. And no one, no one can stop them because Singapore is under Japanese occupation if you are the only survivor. In the face of this horror, would you not cry out for God's judgment against these evildoers? Or would you prefer to believe that a loving God shouldn't unleash His wrath against evil? This is a first world problem. Because the belief that God judges and punishes evil is readily accepted in war-torn countries like Ukraine and Myanmar, but rejected and frowned upon by those living in the most affluent and comfortable societies. A God who doesn't judge evil and wickedness is neither loving nor just. So before we put God on the docks, I'd like to suggest that what God thinks of us is more important than what we think of him. When you stand before the judge, what the judge thinks of you is more important than what you think of the judge. So his love, which compels him to judge and punish evil, should compel us to warn sinners of God's impending judgment. You no, know, in 
Uh, on 2010-27 February, there was a 8.8 magnitude earthquake which struck Chile. And result, this resulted in an, a tsunami which left many dead and the nation devastated. Many lives could be saved, especially those who live near the coastal areas, if they had been warned and moved to a higher ground. But the Chilean Navy feared to issue a tsunami warning after the earthquake. So the defense minister admitted that the Chilean Navy made a mistake by not issuing this tsunami warning. And hence, the Navy, naval head was later fired from his job. So likewise, you know, we Christians, we must keep preaching the bad news of God's final judgment. But we tend to avoid talking about God's judgment because preaching about judgment is tough. And we are fearful of human objection that strikes fear in our hearts. But God mandates us to proclaim the gospel. And the full gospel includes the bad news of his coming wrath. So friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to present the full story, not half-truths, to preach the full counsel of God. But yet Romans chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that rebels will suppress the truth by their wickedness. And in John 8, 45, that rebels reject Jesus because he preached the truth. But our Lord Jesus didn't shy away from it, though it cost him his life. Rebels will reject the truth, but it's the only hope they got. We cannot help it if people suppress the truth and rebel against it and die. But the fault is ours if we fail to proclaim the truth of God's impending judgment, to warn others of the tsunami of God's wrath, because we fear men rather than God. Our fear of God must be greater than our fear of men. And our love for God and men must be greater than our love for our fragile egos. Now, I'd just like to uh, share that uh, I, I, I may seem very brave standing up here, you know, preaching the gospel, but I, I'm, I'm quite timid inside of me. So I was uh, fearful of one particular cousin of mine who's uh, hostile towards uh, Christians. So there was once I invited him over to uh, my house, him and his family. Uh, so midway while having dinner, I played a uh, a Christian sermon on TV, and he got up and uh, stormed out of, of my house with his family before he even finished dinner. And so I, I was very fearful. I have no idea how to share the gospel with this cousin of, of mine. So I prayed to God, and lo and behold, God answered my prayer one day, uh, where this cousin, he called me because we have an auntie who passed away. So we, he's staying quite close by to me. So he needed a lift to go down uh, to, to the wake. And so I said, I said, why not? So I drove him. And uh, you know, as I was driving him, I, I prayed to God, say, God, please embolden me. I took out courage to share the gospel with him. Because I was driving on a, on a highway, I know that he couldn't open the door and jump out of, of the car, right? <laughs> yeah. So God's love compels him to respond and punish evil. And we must be moved by his love to
to warn sinners about his impending judgment. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Next, God's love compels him to save sinners. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We must understand that wrath is not an attribute of God. God is love. God is holy. God is righteous. But God is not wrath. His wrath is his rightful expression of his holy love in the face of evil. Before the foundation of this earth, there was no wrath because there was no sin. Wrath only exists where sin exists. And God's love is actually defined by his hatred against sin. God's love is also manifested in the giving of his son to save sinners from his judgment. And one of the key passages that capture this is Romans chapter 3, verse, verses 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are just all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We see that salvation is a free gift. It must be grace. Why? You know, for the punishment for high treason in most countries or in the past, you know, where one tried to overthrow the, the king or the government is the death penalty. And here in Singapore, if you are on the death row and you try to appear to the court of appeal and your case is dismissed, there is only one person in the whole of Singapore who can save you. It used to be a she, right? Now it's a he. Only the president of Singapore can grant you a presidential clemency. So likewise for God, we cannot earn a royal pardon. It is given despite our total unworthiness. And also in real life, if you can give the judge anything, whether money or service, to earn your pardon, then this judge is corrupted. Hence, salvation must be grace. And we see that as we trust in the giver, no, we demand faith. Faith only function is to receive what grace offers. And since it is a free gift, you can only trust the words and graciousness of the giver. Just like a presidential clemency, you need to take the president's words for it. And what does this salvation encompasses? Well, it justifies us that God no longer holds our sins against us and he declares us righteous in his sight. And God also redeems us. Just as God redeemed Israel from slavery of Pharaoh's evil rule, God now redeems us from the slavery of sin's evil rule, or our self-rule, to live under his good rule. But how is this 
even possible? Verse 25 shows us how. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We see God presented Christ as the hilasterion in Greek. Hilasterion is translated as sacrifice of atonement in the NIV. It refers to the atonement cover, or ESV calls it the mercy seat in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, and other occurrences in the Old Testament. This atonement cover or mercy seat was a plate that covered the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. It is on the atonement cover or the mercy seat that the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled for the forgiving of the people's sin. And atonement includes two aspects. One is expiation, which means the covering or the forgiveness of our sins. The other is propitiation, which is the turning away of God's wrath. So here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 25, God presented Christ as the hilasterion, where he unleashes his full wrath against our sins upon Christ and crushed him to death on the cross. The shedding of Jesus' blood covers our sins and satisfies God's holy justice and wrath. And so verse 26 tells us, by sending Christ to die in our place, to take the wrath that we deserve upon himself, God justifies sinners while he remains just. That God doesn't only judge evil, but he also takes the judgment upon his son on the cross. So why did the God of love send his son Jesus to die for rebels? Why did God do, go so far to do all this? Well, we see that, sorry, I'm missing a slide. That Jesus died so that we can come to God, to be reconciled with him and not become God. Jesus died to free us from the wrath of God. Jesus died to free us from the slavery of sin and to reconcile us back to this loving God. We no longer have to boast in our goodness, our wisdom, our achievements, but to boast in Christ. We no longer die under the burden of trying to be gods. Through Jesus, we are liberated to be humans, to come to God, to admit our weaknesses, our feelings, our mistakes, and to receive forgiveness in Christ. We no longer have to mess up our lives with our self-rule, but to live under His good rule. His love enables us to come out of our hiding, to come home to God. Yet, our self-righteousness blinds us from needing God. We reject His love and His offer of forgiveness when we buy into Satan's lies that, hey, I'm not such a bad person, right? Why do I need forgiveness? I've done no wrong. After all, there are worse people around me, isn't it? Well, we see 
Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. He tells a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. A Pharisee is a religious leader, and here we see both of them go, went into the temple to pray to God. But the Pharisee exalted himself before God. He stood by himself. He stood alone, apart from lesser mortals. And he saw the tax collector's sins. And he prayed to God. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He saw his own righteousness, that he's very religious. I fast twice a week and I give tithing. He was blind to his own sin, but he only saw the sins of others. At this point, he didn't realize he's under God's condemnation. He was blind to his need for God. He stand and trust in his own goodness and achievement, that his own righteousness saved him rather than God's righteousness. And what is shocking is not that he's saying this aloud to others. What is shocking is that he's saying all these things to God. He came to God and flexed to him. I am quite righteous. I don't need your forgiveness. Hence, he recognized himself as God. The Pharisee was so full of himself that he has no space for God in his heart. He exalted himself so high that he is out of reach to God. His self-glory blinds him from seeing God's glory. And there are Pharisees living in each and every one of us, where our self-glory blinds us to our own sins where we don't say sorry for hurting others. There's no coming to Jesus for forgiveness. Instead, after we hurt others and we sin against God, what do we do? Well, easy. Since we are righteous, we just justify away our sins and make excuses for it. Some of the common excuses that sometimes I give to myself when I sin against God is when I shout at my kids, you know, or I quarrel with my wife, was, ah, I was tired. I was hangry. I was stressed preparing this sermon. No, you triggered me first. You started this fight, huh? right? Not me, huh? Last time, I'm not like that. Well, you just don't know whom I married to, who I work with. Oh, pity me. I'm surrounded by morons. Our self-glory makes us more irritated by our neighbor's sins and more concerned for their repentance than our own. And we view others as worse sinners than us. Hang on, I'm not like so-and-so, so-and-so, right? So God's love through Christ should compel us to come to Him to confess our sins and to seek forgiveness. But a Pharisee doesn't recognize his need for God's forgiveness. We also see that a Pharisee do religion without relation with Christ. The fact that he deals with Jesus at arm's length shows that he rejects Christ. 
Likewise, brothers and sisters, religiosity is when you come close to Jesus. You do all the Christian things without letting Jesus come into your heart, to sit on the throne of your heart. You know, when a Pharisee attends service, he critiques the service. He focuses on others' mistakes and faults, like how bad my pronunciation is. You know, or the musician, ah, play a, a note off. You know, or the service leader, you know, yeah, very bad. Rather than coming to worship God, a Pharisee would critique the message instead of allowing the message to critique us and to expose the sins of our hearts. You know, Pastor Jason, all this talk about repentance is for my wife or husband and has nothing to do with me. Hey, in fact, hey, that guy whom I don't really like here in church today, yeah, you know that Pharisee I'm talking about? I hope he's listening to this message right now for he needs to repent. We look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined or less successful. You know that after church, I only want to talk to certain people after service, not the less educated kind. When a Pharisee meets his Christian friends for lunch, you know, and his friends shares about their struggles in life, he lacks empathy towards their broken relationship and their illness. Instead of offering them a listening ear, a Pharisee becomes impatient and wants to throw solutions and quick fixes and ask them to move on with their life. And the Pharisee gets bored after a while and quickly turns the conversation to talk about himself and his achievements. And when a Pharisee attends Bible study, he gets easily annoyed by others' slowness in understanding the passage. While we see the tax collector, who's a traitor in the eyes of society at that time. Why? Because a tax collector, for the love of money, he sell out his country to work for the Romans to extract taxes from his own people, to make their lives miserable. So this tax collector, he came before God and humbled himself. He saw his own sinfulness. He saw how broken he is. He understands that he had broke the law and is under judgment of God and he desperately needs God's mercy. And so he throws himself before God and cries out, have mercy on me. You know, sometimes when we go to a party or we visit a friend's house, you know, uh, we normally bring a gift along, right? But when you come to Jesus, Jesus is not transactional. It is okay to come empty-handed to him. You might have committed some of the most terrible sins in the past. You might be living under the crushing weight of your guilt and shame. Or you might be the most broken person in the world right now. It's okay. You can come empty-handed to Jesus. For God, compelled by His love, has offered us His Son to forgive and to reconcile us to Himself. People who recognize that they are rebels and cannot keep the law and have nothing to offer to Jesus are the ones who need Jesus the most. Because in Jesus, we have everything. 
For forgiveness is offered to those who receive it, not those who reject it. And hence we see the tax collector, he recognised God as God. Both came to, before God in the temple that day, but only one left justified in God's eyes. And God's love that compels him to save sinners should compel us to proclaim Christ and restore broken sinners and rebels to himself. Sinners need to hear the gospel so that they can be saved. Only the gospel can turn them from rebels to worshippers, to give God the glory. I have a confession to make. I am a Pharisee. No, a couple of years back, I have a close brother uh, whom I, let's put it this way, I disagree with his sexual lifestyle. And so we had, uh, we had dinner one night. And so he told me, said, hey, Jason, you are a pastor, right? Yeah, um, I like to go to Israel with my group of friends, right? And I'd like you to come along to be our guide. I'll pay for your trip. I want you to come along so that you can explain to me on this trip about Jesus, right? Because it's, it's Israel. And so I was very troubled because of his sexual lifestyle and his group of friends. And so I was very reluctant to go on this trip. Like the Pharisee, I have already condemned him and his friends in my heart. And so I pray and cry out to God. I say, God, I really don't want to go for this trip. Please help me find a way out. I don't want to give him some lousy lies or excuses. Give me a way out of this. And God answered my prayer by sending COVID. <laughs> and so there was a lockdown and no one travels. For that, so for the two years plus, I didn't have to go for this trip. God listened to the prayers of the righteous. <laughs> but on hindsight, I was so foolish, you know, because God actually opened this door of opportunity for me to share the gospel with him. If I were to go, if the trip was to happen, they are captive audience, right? For the next, I don't know, couple of weeks or so. But I was foolish by making that prayer. Well, Bonhoeffer has a famous saying, but I like to redefine it or, or reapply it. Bonhoeffer tells us that silence in the face of evil is, is, is in itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God in his love has spoken and acted against evil. What about us? Our silence would be evil on more than one account because we deprive evildoers from being safe and rob God of his glory. The best way to deal with evil is to tell them about the love of God. Hebrews 9, 27 tells us, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. May God help us and have mercy upon us. Let us pray. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, despite our rebellion, our self-rule, and the evil that we have done, in your great love, you move and respond to evil by punishing evildoers. Yet at the same time, this same love compels you to save us. And so, Father, I thank you, Lord, for this privilege to stand before you, to be declared righteous because of your mercy, because of the righteousness of Christ and not ours. And so, Father, may we be moved by your love this morning to, to compel us to proclaim your love to lost sinners so that they can escape the final judgment and to be reconciled to, your, to yourself. So, Father, help us, O Lord, for we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.